Welcome to a podcast on fire on Fong Sayok and Asus Go Places Free Our Man from Bond Street. Jet Li plays yet another Chinese folk hero during the busy Wirefu 90s, and Cinema City takes the Asus Go Places series to more firm James Bond places, including internationally. They go abroad. In this episode, therefore, we review Koryun's martial arts comedy Fong Sayok from 1993, starring Jet Li, and Asus Go Places Free, this time directed by Choi Ak. And this is from 1984, and uh, I'm Kenobi, and with me to discuss, um, you know, the start of one little series and resume discussion of a big series is East Screen, West Screen's uh, Paul Fox. So, good morning, buddy. Hello. Yes, indeed, sunny Florida, and uh, fairly warm Florida for this time of year as well. Uh, good, good, good. Uh, getting into the groove of uh, podcasting from over there, as evident by uh, your own show that I uh, follow. Uh, whenever it drops, uh, it's uh, being listened to almost immediately because it's a nice brief watch. And uh, therefore, we should uh, give you the op to uh, plug once again East Screen or West Screen. So uh, go ahead. Yeah, we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood, and uh, we usually try to stay a bit more Hong Kong centric if possible. But now that I'm stateside, that's a bit harder for me to do since they don't uh, release too many films over here in my neck of the woods. But, uh, yeah, we do try and, uh, you know, keep everything Asia-centric at the very least. And uh, I'll try and pick up some stuff that's coming out on Netflix or coming out on uh, video now, video streaming, to try and keep abreast of that so that the listeners don't feel too overwhelmed by, you know, when we talk about uh, geeky stuff like Star Wars or... Uh, science fiction films or the West screen films that we tend to focus on. Hey, you guys are into, um, because uh, um, I'm, I'm not saying that in a dismissive way, I'm simply, I'm not, but you, you guys are into the Marvel and DC stuff. Like, uh, what's coming up uh, in 2017 next in terms of uh, Marvel, for instance? So what, 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 they, what do they have cooking? Yeah, we have, uh, this year is going to be the second Guardians of the Galaxy film, I believe. That should be before summer. And then for the second film, we are getting the Thor, the third Thor film, Thor Ragnarok, which I've read is basically going to be a sort of uh, buddy movie with Thor and the Hulk. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Them driving around in a car together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like arguing and shit. Driving through space, battling aliens, you know. I, they got my coffee order wrong. <laughs> Then the car blows up. Uh, yeah, well, two a year. Maybe that's a suitable amount of them, uh, I guess. I, I've, uh, I've had my uh, theories and thoughts on uh, oversaturation in the, in case of uh, Marvel or what have you. But uh, maybe two a year is um, what they should uh, settle on. And I guess technically, too, I mean, if you count the partnership, we do have the reboot or return of Spider-Man as well. Spider-Man Home- Homecoming. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, Stopped that Spider-Man 3, I think, the Sam Raimi one, and uh, <laughs> wasn't very <laughs> encouraged to, like, okay, I'm done now. Like, uh, so, so, I love Sam, but uh, come on. I, I do really like the new kid they cast. I think he did very well holding up uh, amongst the, the multitude of heroes that we got last year in uh, the Captain America Civil War movie. So I'm excited. I'm also excited by who they cast as the villain, uh, Michael Keaton. For this film. So while I do think we've kind of been, you know, overdone with Spider-Man, I didn't really care for the the Andrew Garfield reboots as much just because I don't think they got the kind of attention they needed. I am excited to to see what they do now with this new kid. Is uh speaking of Troy Hawk, is a Journey to the West um two hitting uh hitting during the Lunar New Year? Yes it is, yes it is. And it 
fact, I want to say it's a bit later this month at the time of recording. And yeah, I don't know when. I'm hopeful that we'll get it sooner rather than later. You know, with, with some Hong Kong films, especially Wong Jing films, you may not see them on video for a year after release. It's just weird how other things, you know, they'll, you know, they'll pump them out within weeks sometimes. So It was okay, the Journey to the West one that Stephen Chow did. I just felt like the guy asked to play Stephen Chow, who was a good actor. He played Jet Li's son in uh, Ocean Heaven. Uh, I don't remember his name, but uh, I believe that that was the main actor. But it just felt like it's someone trying to be Stephen Chow and it's not really working for me. It's, it's an entertaining romp and all of that. But I, I'm enjoying the cute little uh, Choi Hak, Stephen Chow um, trailer skits that they do together uh, for, for the trailers. Uh, literally something shot on video in the offices. They are cute, which made me sort of... I know they're not going to figure into the movie, obviously, but that was at least a new wrinkle on the promotion to have uh, uh, Stephen Chow appear in front of camera doing anything silly, I'll take, because uh, he's uh, he's, uh, he's comfortable behind the camera, but they're cute together, even if not a classic team. Yeah, I'd almost say, you know, just make a movie about that, about Stephen Chow working with Zoe Hark to produce a film, sort of like what they did with, um, oh, what was the what was the Chapman Toe movie about the Category 3 uh Bulgaria? Bulgaria, yeah. My, my, my brain is not working. Uh, just like Bulgaria, right, uh, where, where it was more about the making of a movie, you know, just let those two guys go to town and, and make that a movie, and that would be entertainment in and of itself, right? Yeah, yeah. shoot it like The Office or something, um, and not even do a movie, maybe do a TV thing. I, I'd, I'd watch that in a heartbeat because I think both of them uh, all funny. Uh, even Choi Huck. We, we love Choi Huck over here. Speaking of Aces Go Places, uh, uh, when he appeared in the uh, second one and uh, obviously directing this one. I love Maria and all of that. But uh, let's uh, let's uh, re- review his work uh, in the second half of uh, this show. And uh, let me just rattle off the rest of the contact information uh, really quickly. This is Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network. This show covers Hong Kong cinema, new and old. But we have plenty of other shows covering uh, Japanese cinema, Korean cinema, Slicy cinema, Ninja cinema. And we even do uh, bonus episodes and audio commentary every now and again. If you have any questions or feedback, let us know what you think of uh, these movies, Fong Sayuk and uh, the Aces Go, Aces Go Places series. Uh, our email address is podcastonfire at googlemail.com Join us over on social media, click the relevant buttons at the top of our website. The Facebook one leads to our page, but uh, once you're there, you can type in Podcast on Fire Network to find our group, where most of the chat uh, goes on and show updates and all of that, so join the very uh, friendly discussion. Uh, Also, uh, click the Twitter button if you want to follow our tweets. Uh, iTunes button leads you to our uh, feed that you can subscribe to leave a star rating on and even leave a comment on if you feel you have something to say about uh, the network or any of the shows and finally stream us on stitcher radio where the, uh, the button leads to their website but that um that you can also download an application from the apple app store and google play and uh, once you're in stitcher just type in podcast on fire network and um you'll find us so you can stream us uh, on the go and i write about the variety of hong kong and taiwanese movies over at sogoodreviews.com vintage uh, more rougher uh, taiwanese movies and uh, category free from hong kong and some uh, godfrey ho ninja stuff as well but uh, I, I cover a wide variety of uh, genres in the minor reviews over at sogoodreviews.com and i video review at sleazykvideo.com and my twitter handle is at sogoodreviews so uh, that uh, takes us 
to the promo break. So listen to uh, a spot from one of our friends in the podcasting community. And after that, we'll review Fong Sayok from 1993. So sit tight and we'll be back. Available now on KungFuMovieGuide.com. It's the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast. Well, if you're really so determined to have a fight, then I'll oblige. That's right, be sure to check out the Kung Fu Movie Guide for our first season of podcasts. Available from KungFuMovieGuide.com My name is Ben Johnson and you can join me as I have some serious in-depth conversations with some of the leading lights in the world of martial arts movie making. From directors to stuntmen to actors to choreographers to fellow writers and bloggers... Be sure to tune in over the next few months to get your fortnightly fix of all things Chopsocky. Visit KungFuMovieGuide.com to check out the podcast and keep up to date with the site by following us on Twitter at KFMovieGuide. And may Buddha bless you. And welcome back in the first review of this episode is Fong Sayuk from 1993 and plot from the Love HK film review of the film. It's a fairly busy plot, but it's kind of easy to um, grab hold of, but uh, thankfully Koso summarized it uh, well and uh, like this. The movie is about legendary hero Fong Sayuk, who was a member of the Red Flower Society, a secret society who decided to take back the country from the Manchu-run Qing Dynasty. As portrayed by Jet Li, Fong is a happy-go-lucky kung fu expert who spends his time fooling around with his buddies. By strange happenstance, he gets involved with Ting Ting, played by Michelle Hayes, which is a, it's a Portuguese name, that's why she has that name. She's also known as uh, Michelle Li. Uh, she's the daughter of the new Manchu governor, played by Taiwanese actor Chan Chung Yung. However, Fong Sayuk doesn't. Uh, just get involved with um, Ting Ting. Here's where it gets uh, complicated. Circumstances are much more involved than screwball comedy complex in nature. Fong Sayuk wins a kung fu contest to determine Ting Ting's future husband, but he doesn't realize that Ting Ting is the girl whose uh, hand is won. And uh, even more, his supermom, played by Josephine Xiao, dresses up like a man to bail out her son and ends up winning the affections of Fong's new mother-in-law, played by Sibel Hu. Plus, the new governor doesn't know that Fong Sayuk's dad, played by Paul Chu, fuck me, this is complicated, is a high-ranking Red Flower uh, society officer. And last but not least, the supreme government baddie, future Wong Fei Hong here himself, uh, Vincent Chow, arrives to act mean and terrorize everyone in sight. Bless Koso for breaking it down. This is what's going on, but man, they, they, <laughs> a lot of threads here. But uh, I, 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 I can't say it was muddled or anything. Here, so, uh, but uh, uh, I, I want to make a quick take uh, first. Uh, I'll let you do that. So, in short, what, what do you think of uh, Fong Sayuk that I'm sure has uh, been screened in front of you once or twice throughout the year? How can I put this? <laughs> I know this is a beloved film by many people. For me, I always considered it sort of a secondary classic because I think that. Coming off of the, I, I think he was, this is after Once Upon a Time in China 2, where Jet Li had, you know, kind of shot to fame through the Wong Fei Hung role. I always felt that this film was miscast with the lead role of Fong Sai-yuk. I always felt that Jet Li was a little too old for the role. Not in the same way that, you know, uh, uh, Jackie Chan was way too old <laughs> to play Wong Fei Hung in Drunken Master 2. I just I, I've always felt that it, it sort of should have been somebody a little bit younger because 
especially when I watched this in the cinema, it was like, okay. Ooh, you, just... hold, hold, hold on, hold on. Cinema, my friend. How, in, how on earth uh, in 1993 or 4 did you get a chance to see this at the cinema? Do tell. I got hooked on Hong Kong films in... Well, I'd watched Shaw Brothers films growing up as a kid, you know, on video and Kung Fu theater Sundays and on TV and stuff. But they actually, there was actually a theater that was Chinese-owned here in South Florida that would run midnight movies on Friday nights. And the midnight movies they would run would be first-run films from Hong Kong. And I just happened across this ad in the paper where it just said midnight movie, Chinese movie. It didn't even have a title. And I went to check it out, and the first movie I ended up seeing was uh, not, not Bloody Brotherhood. That was the second um, my, why is my brain not working today? It's too early. Some Andy Lau movie, probably. No, no, right. <laughs> no. Andy Lau was the second week. The first week, it was the Tony Lung movie that's a remake, gangster remake. Why am I not thinking of this? It's like a remake of, um, what's the Sean Connery movie? Uh, is it The Untouchables with Kevin Costner? It's Tony Lung. It's Carrie. Mm. Oh, yeah, Gunman. Gunman, yes. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's usually the first movie. Like, what's the first Hong Kong movie? It's Gunman. Um, so Gunman was the first one that I ended up seeing theatrically. And then it was week after week. That's where I really got into current Hong Kong cinema. And so during that run, I got to see the um, Wong Fei Hong movies, uh, the Fong Sayok films. And did, this was running up until I want to say about 90, 1997. And the theaters then closed down uh, because the regular weekly business just wasn't doing well. And it was a tragic loss for me. I still have a bunch of, because they used to have these, you know, Xerox printed flyers of the movies. And when we moved back here, I, I was going through storage and I still have all the Xerox flyers they oh, have wow. like, for what was coming next week and what was coming the next week. And I was looking through them, kind of, kind of going through uh, memory lane. So I, I got to see Fong Sayuk when it screened here in South Florida, which I want to say is like a month after it screened in Hong Kong, I guess, because there was there was some delay as the films would travel around. I know that um, I remember talking with Kevin and Ross. I think they used to have screenings in uh, California, and I'm sure they had some up in New York and some up in Canada. So these films would like you know make their way around to different hot spots in in the U.S. I guess. But when I saw this film in the theater, I was like, it. He kind of looks like. Wong Fei Hong, except he's doing a bit of comedy, and I, for me, it was just too close. I guess I, I just it was hard for me at the time to separate out the characters. The look was too much like, even at one point, like there he does a a few martial arts moves, and he's got like a flag that he's holding out like a spear, and it's very akin to um, a stance that he did in one of the Wong Fei Hong films. And they even make a gag at one point, right? Yeah, we'll get to that. I certainly didn't catch that gag in mid-90s when I taped this off no. TV because I, I didn't know who these guys were that they were referencing, uh, the, the actual uh, filmmaking people. By the way, it's quite ironic that you, you say, like, well, he feels too old. Like, the problem people had when they said they cast Jet Li as Wong Fei Hong in Once Upon a Time in China was that he looked too young. And then he mm -hmm. proved everybody wrong by being quite good in the movie as, as a performer. And people were coming off of, you know, Quan Ta Hing, who certainly, you know had looked old for quite a while you know he just had that face and he was Wong Fei Hong so it's like uh, exchanging you know speaking of Star Wars like uh, Luke Skywalker for someone else or Han, or Han Solo for someone else uh, it's, a, it's a bit of an adjustment I suppose uh, after someone has made something iconic there is that Let, uh, let's um, 
actually uh, move forward forward a little bit in uh, in terms of my my cook opinion uh, i think it's a lot of fun and it's also amusing to very it varies that amusement but a lot of it is and this at the time uh, you know sort of new but still uh, thriving uh, very intense frantic style of kung fu is despite its dissing appearance quite coherent in this one i mean some of these movies weren't they just shot and flew put people on wires and sort of shot it and it was quite incoherent but uh, i think it's uh, coherent here and uh, quite widely creative and it's a relaxing viewing uh, i think uh, if once upon a time in china or any of the sequels proves too heavy for you then this is a little bit more relaxing viewing classic well it's entertaining it's part of that era that i i grew up on but thorough classic i wouldn't say so but i think it's fun. i think it's fun it's part of that like jetly streak when he he could do nothing wrong and no wonder he broke through as big as he did and um so, so yeah I, I i mean i it's not the religion to me or anything but the, what was your take on that kung fu boom that choi hak initiated with this focus on taking the wire work up a notch uh, having been used to Shaw brothers i suppose uh was this a uh, compelling once he decided through mainly swordsman and then once upon a time in china to take the wire work up uh, to the levels he did well i think so i mean i think especially for someone like myself who'd been watching early shaw brothers stuff for a long time who'd come through with some of the bruce lee films to see something like this it was at the time very fresh and exciting and i think i remember reading an interview or in a book somewhere where in preparation for the wong fei hong film uh, Jackie Chan had actually talked to Toy Hark to ask him not to use wire work. I don't have a problem with the wire work. I've always enjoyed it. It does kind of push it beyond the boundary of, you know, maybe a more grounded or hard-hitting sort of... Well, hard-hitting is not really the right word, but, you know, the the, the kind of stuff that, that Jackie does, which tends to be a, a lot more physical in terms of the you know what they're doing with the hits i mean he uses wires too in terms of safety stuff but he's not like flying you know so we so we get the, we get more of the flying effect with these movies right where people can can do the the soft leaf glide and and things that we we'd see amped up to the ang lee movie uh, crouching tiger hidden dragon in a much more sort of artistic or aesthetic manner i guess but for me this kind of of the the look and the feel of these films was something that I really gravitated to in the 90s. The good ones, at least. I mean, uh, I had the fortune of seeing, you know, these two, Tai Chi Master and, and the likes, you know, but, but once you dive into it, you realize that not everybody is doing it as well. Some of them are doing it way cheaper, more quicker. It's not the worst movie, but think of a movie like Butterfly and Sword, which is entertaining, kind of frantic, but it's um it, it is more quick in its uh depiction of it all uh but but what butterfly sword does is um crank the insanity a little bit uh, the graphic insanity P- people like fly fly through uh other people's uh, you know bodies and uh p- pierce them through their kung fu i guess i don't know it's, it, it's just fun like dissing stuff i don't know what's happening but that guy just flew through another guy and that was cool and i think there's a there's especially if you go back and you experience these films in a somewhat temporal manner that is year by year by year, you can kind of see how they are riffing off each other and how they're kind of learning off each other. I, Although I think I would say if I had to pick a film, I enjoyed the Once Upon a Time in China film 
a bit more than Fong Sayok, even though I like the comedy here mm-hmm. and I appreciate that. The, some of the character performances, I think I, I'd gravitate more into in this film. But in terms of the actual set pieces, the, the choreography set pieces, I think the some of the things they do here are far more memorable for me than what they do in the Once Upon a Time in China films. I mean, I can remember the fights that happen in Once Upon a Time in China films, but I can't really explain them to somebody. I've seen this film just as many times as I've seen the Once Upon a Time in China films, you know, multiple viewings. I don't remember how many, but I could sit down with a friend and I could say, no, he goes and he's got to try and win this fight to win the bride and it's on the tower and they're kicking pieces off and then they're stepping on people's heads and fighting on top of people. There's a sense of cohesion that for me, as in a sort of fight choreography narrative sense, is much more clear and seems much tighter and much much more developed, I guess. And again, I think it's because they've been building and they've seen what their contemporaries have done in other films and they they take it as a challenge and you know they kind of build on it year after year after year. Yeah, so, certainly. And, and all of this, by the way, is, is a little bit of an extension of what was already there. I mean, Wirework wasn't non-existent up until Choi Hawk uh, found that out. I mean, obviously in the 70s. We we had it uh, in Taiwan. They at at times managed to make these really good fantasy movies, but but especially the eighties, um, whether Hong Kong or Taiwan, we started to see how wuxia movies and special effects could be amped and combined with wires. And obviously, Choi Hak brought some of that with Sue, this uh, frantic nature involving special effects and wires. So it was developing, and Choi Hak has always had these stages of, okay, I'm going to establish special effects now. Boom, did. I'm going to establish a new wave of Kung Fu now. That's my vision. Boom, did. So there is fascinating stages that you can connect between his work and other people's work as well. And and for Corey's work here, Corey Yun who directed and I think he had a hand in the action. It is dissing, uh, but it's not unclear. It's uh, just that <laughs> for this viewing, I don't think I was ready for the assault that early because the movie opens with a bang and uh, we, we got this type of action quite early. So I wasn't quite ready for it, but uh, I, I, I'm, 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 I've seen the movie a couple of times. I, I, I know I can sink into comfort, but um, it's uh, it, it's a bit of a, a bit of a surprise that it handles action the way it does. It's not foreign to watch, though, in terms of a martial arts movie. It has typical martial arts structure. It starts serious with a brewing conflict and then cut to our goofy hero, which, as you know, Paul, could be, uh, especially in the 70s, could be a make-or-break issue for a movie because if you don't have a... A goofy hero is not the goal, necessarily. When Jackie Chan played goofy heroes, it was better. When most other people played goofy heroes you just want to slice your wrists sometimes because it's so unbelievably <laughs> intolerable. And and then some cool action happens. But uh, uh, Fong Sayok has no uh, problem uh, doing it. It is uh, fairly fun and amusing, uh, rather playful. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> it, 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 this was made by Jet Li's production company. I don't know if you noticed this, but his intro, uh, Fong Sayok's intro, is accompanied by the same uh, music that the, his production company has the Eastern, what is it? What is it? Eastern Star. You hear it at the top of the movie. Da, 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 dum, 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 dum. You can hear that on the soundtrack as Fong Sayok is introduced himself. So, okay, being cheeky or being rather disgusting uh, just because you are a producer. I don't know, but it is uh, it is amusing. 
And I don't have a problem with age, I think. I, you know, it's not re- not religion necessarily. So I watch this and I have a good time. And uh, I think he's uh, fun and he's especially fun with Josephine. So I, I didn't think um, age was a problem. I, th- I think it's less of a problem compared to when he played Wong Fei Hung. Because now, because he looks youthful, it's, he can sink his teeth into this role a little bit more. And his uh, smile always thought was quite uh, infectious and... Um, so so, so there, there is that but one thing that martial arts movies do not do necessarily is to have a track and field competition in the, at the beginning of the movie without any story being established so they're not even doing necessarily kung fu here it's wire assisted track and field when you talk about it paul it sounds like a sequence that it sounds like it's stalling the movie it's it's obviously about introducing us to michelle's character too but I, uh, I I thought this was um, a fun little playful aura that establishes the movie, that, what, what it's going to do and uh, what kind of powers that Jet Li's character um, possesses. So I, I thought uh, the track and field competition was um, was good fun, even if not classic fun, but it's all, all good fun. So uh, yeah, any spontaneous notes on, on this uh, track and field uh, competition? Uh, it, it, it defies logic for the movie, by the way, because if these characters can fly, why are they running in the first place? <laughs> well, they don't fly. They just can jump really, really high. Well, really, well if they really can jump far, really, right? really high and far, why are they running it, <laughs> running at all? They can just jump, oh, 400 meters. Fantastic. World record. Two seconds. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of like the old, uh, the old uh, original Superman, right? He didn't fly. He just, you know, could leap tall buildings with a single bound. That was yeah. the, This is the thing that I remember when we were in the cinema. Was, and it's just a, such a almost stupid thing <laughs> apparently he is running so fast in the track and field event that you know he has the manchurian cue that all men were supposed to wear during the, the Qing dynasty you know the, the to show that he's running so very fast to catch up and win the race his cue is like stretched out straight <laughs> yep horizontally perfectly horizontally we have a gag in Aces Go Places Free that also defies our logic that way <laughs> you talk about wire foo I mean I <laughs> It's a wire cue. Run, it's... run, foo with your wire cue. If you think about it, this is kind of a precursor to Shaolin soccer, right? This is the idea that kung fu just isn't about fighting; it's about training, and it's about making yourself so skilled that you can apply those skills to other things, like sports. And in this case, you know, a sort of track and field meet event where they're doing the long jump and they're doing a relay race. You can apply your kung fu skills and come out on top, which is great. I wonder, though, if this was completely going against the audience's expectations for a movie called Fong Sayok, because Jet Li is not the first one to play Fong Sayok. Um, I know Fung Bo Bo, Petrina Fong, did a couple of times in the 50s and 60s. Um, I, I've, I've not seen him, I just know that she did play Fong Sayok, and yes, Petrina is a woman, but she played a boy in that, so uh, no biggie in Hong Kong cinema. But uh, the ones I remember seeing was uh, the Shaw Brothers ones. So Fu Sheng played, uh, Alexander Fu Sheng played Fong Sayok. At least twice. Uh, Heroes 2, Shaolin Avengers. Not fun movies. I mean, they're, they're, they're about, you know, the conflict. Uh, and uh, I think he's in, uh, the character's in, I want to say, Disciples of the 36th Chamber as I was well. about to say, like, Xiao, Xiao Hao, or how, however you pronounce his name, uh, the lead from Mad Monkey Kung Fu, played Fong Sayok in the third 36th Chamber movie. So I, I wonder, though, it's, it's just a theory, if this was Corey Yun taking a huge risk by showing him uh, this, this goofy and having a track and field competition before even any Red Flower Society conflict is uh, 
uh, at the forefront and he has to change but because it's not a biopic he's just set up as pretty cocky i know stuff and uh, i got this so it's not a from childhood to my own uh, movie or anything in the researching that i was doing unlike wong fei hong and say figures like ip man it's not really clear if fong sai yuk is completely fictional like a robin hood character um, or was a real person. They just there. There's no evidence to point to him being a real person. That doesn't mean he wasn't. But um, the the events that are taking place here, this does happen during the Qing Dynasty, during the reign of Emperor Qianlong. And like right in the f- very start of the movie, you have this uh, dream, which is uh, of an assassination attempt against the Emperor Qianlong. He's older now. So if you're familiar with uh, the like the journey of the Voyage of the Emperor Qianlong and those films, which are really fun, you know, Shaw Brothers films. I enjoy those very much. Here, it's the same character, apparently later in life and now, you know, dealing with the idea of rebellion and he's a bit paranoid, uh, which sort of, you know, kicks all of this off. So Fong Sayok is here and I, I guess they just feel a bit more freedom to play with the character because he's not somebody who's been super well established by, you know, veteran character actors in TV shows, and there's just not a lot of, you know, historic literature out there about them. So if they want to change him from a, you know, a sort of a less serious cocky kid into sort of a, you know, into sort of the comedic route, I I think, you know, it was an interesting choice. And I think perhaps in part to get him further away from the Wong Fei Hong, you know, super stoic, super serious character that Jet Li had already established. Yeah, f- fair enough. Certainly, Jet Li took Wong Fei Hong into um, comedic territory for for Lost Here in China, <laughs> so, which is such a stupid movie. But it's Wong Jing, and it's got some great wire action, uh, ludicrous beyond belief. And I think beyond belief. And regardless if it's translated correctly, I think one of the m- more lasting genius aspects of uh, Lost Here in China is the name of Nat Chan's character. They pronounce it into English as his name is Mass, M-A-S-S, Tar Wong. So he's Master Wong, essentially. Mm. And I thought that was, okay, you got me. I, I, I smiled, I chuckled. Um, speaking of uh, silly names and all of that, um, the uh, the in gag that could be intolerable and could be genius for that little um, for for a few seconds it lasts is that we uh, we we mentioned it before we might, we might as well uh, tell it. Uh, at one point, uh, Fong Sayok and his friends uh, friends are arrested, but uh, they get out on uh, bail or whatever, and uh, they say, "Well, what are they gonna say?" Because they know we're arrested. No, 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 that's okay. I wrote uh, I wrote false names. Uh, I, I I said you are called Lao Chin Wai, which is Jeff Lau, the uh, writer and uh, for this one and director obviously, and your name is uh, Yun Kui, which is Corey Yun. and what was your name then? It was Wong, and he does the Wong Fei Hong pose and says Jing, and that will probably uh, the house will probably come down in cinemas at that time. Ah, he said Wong Jing, genius. It's not really genius, but it made me <laughs> chuckle. Because, okay, it's funny, he, he does the Wong Fei Hong pose, um, which is probably connected to his martial arts, and then he's, ding, I get it, I get it. Do you remember if that brought down the house in, in the mid-90s, or it, that was primarily an, an American audience you were watching it with? Um, no, it was mostly, a, I would say, Chinese-American audience, and yeah, I mean, it definitely got a chuckle, although I didn't get it at the time, for sure, because uh, you know I was still very young in, in my understanding of sort of the behind-the-scenes people. Picking up light and all of that, uh, Josephine, Josephine Xiao's performance, being the very being the funny mother, 
it's a character that could make or break a movie because if this isn't funny, it's gonna be great. But how how do you think uh, jo- Josephine's role works? And uh, if you want to talk about the chemistry she has with uh, Jet Li, then uh, then you're welcome to do so. So the floor is yours. She makes the film. I mean, uh, I can't put it any any more straightforward than that. Uh, watching this film and going back for rewatches. Her scenes are the ones that I look forward to the most, and I I come away wishing that she'd been on screen even more than than she was. This was one of her, yeah, it was like not her next to last performance, but she only did a couple more films after the Fong Sayok movies. Yeah, Summer Snow and uh, Majung Dragon are about. I think Hudo Men in '96 as well. So yeah, this was. I mean, this was. I don't want to say a last hurrah for her, but it was one of the final times that we'd see her doing big comedy like this uh, as well as some action and i just really love anytime she you know she's on screen whether being ridiculous or even the, you know the action scenes scenes she's doing uh, alongside with jet lee are great she is ready to play that's for sure you get that that uh, you know from frame one she is ready to play and be very very silly and you just get the confidence level there, uh, seeing the first scenario when she has, <laughs> she doesn't have dark glasses, so she paints, she, she paints them black, and then a westerner comes in to buy cloth from her, and there's a whole big thing about that. But she is just like her son; she may appear goofy and silly, but she's got control of situations physically, and knows how to beat someone. You well, well not beat up, but uh, to come come ahead of the situation after all is said and done. And uh, there there are well timed gags here, uh, especially within uh, banter, and um, especially with uh, Jet Li as well. And and the gags are also the the physical ones are also what I like to call cut to gags, where there's a reveal that you didn't expect. For instance, after Jet Li has been beaten by his father, the Paul Chu character, uh, his mother is uh, attending to those wounds because he's got, uh, you know, bruises all over his face. And you hear off screen, uh, she talking about, well, I, I blocked most of them uh, myself. And you cut to Josephine and she is equally bruised <laughs> up because <laughs> Paul Chu has just beaten the shit out of her as well. And those cut to gags, they're not about like, wow, look at you, but... Because they can see each other. They already know this, but we don't. And because it's sort of droll and dry as well, they don't play it uh, loudly. They're not screaming at each other or anything. That is gold for me. And uh, she is very good at that stuff. She's Even in Summer Snow, there's, you know, the Anhoi drama. There's a couple of things, uh, a couple of comedy beats there that just is uh, very natural, even realistic. And it shows that she had uh, a grasp of that and... uh, and then some. All things considered, with um, uh, hearing loss, you know, she always uh, came uh, off, you know, as ready to play and fully engaged in movies. It never came off as uh, being problematic for her. And uh, a brave woman in many, in many ways. Uh, so um, no negative tint to her performance at all. Often just spot on. In and some actresses probably wouldn't have commanded this role as well as she does because this can be a role that can fail miserably really I, I didn't really notice how much action she does obviously she's doubled a lot but i for some reason i didn't really take that into consideration that she performs any action other than you know cl- close-ups where in the dialogue within fight scenes and stuff in the middle part when she and jet lee are taking on um vincent's out together for the first time um there's a couple medium shots where you know she's kind of matched up with jet lee and they're doing the shadow fist thing and 
um, you can tell it's her there. And, and yeah, a lot of her, I mean, a lot of when she's up in the, in the wooden tower is obviously going to be stunt doubles, but still, I think that, you know, for her, given her age and uh, the idea that she's going to be game to do this film, which is going to require quite a bit of physicality, I think is, is very commendable. And uh, we, we won't get stuck like on each fighting scenario, but obviously one that people remember from the movie is, uh, well, it's a big sequence, but one that takes place um, on top of uh, people's heads at one point as this uh, kung fu competition, you, you're not supposed to touch the ground and therefore uh, you lose if you do. And so at one point, Sibel Hu and Jet Li's character are fighting on people's uh, heads and uh, I have some notes on the action later on that connects to this sequence, but I, I have to say, despite being so fast and so quick cut to a degree, it's still clear where we are and uh, where them going from ground to air and uh, them kicking around the poles of the whole foundation, the wooden foundation. And it just feels Corey and his team, they just get it right. You know, it's conveyed in tiny cuts because they can't do these these, these things for five ten seconds because it just isn't work that requires just edit after edit after edit to convey the full flow because because of the scenario they take on which is crazy to fight on top of people's heads you can't do that for extended periods of time but i i really like the sequence and and uh, even as quick cut as it is and i'm not saying it's incoherent it's just the way they have to do it it all reveals that this was done amidst people and uh, probably a very slow sequence to to shoot <laughs> i would say is it a favorite of yours this uh long scenario with sabel who and jet Li and uh, eventually uh, josephine as well for, for me in terms of the choreography they're at their peak here even more so than we, we do get a sort of a final fight sequence at the end which involves quite a few people and extras but i think this sequence is the one that really stands out for the film if you've got any experience with film or or film terminology or the idea of how cinematography works you can watch this and you can kind of see how they do it where they're doing sort of upward shots of the actor kind of running you know you don't see their legs so they're obviously running on a platform and there's people in the foreground and then they'll cut to sort of a downward shot of some actors feet lightly touching on people's heads and shoulders but it is very seamless. It is very well done. It's very easy, easy to get those kind of shots and those kind of angles just off to where they don't fit well. And you never get that sense here. And especially towards the end of that sequence where they are actually standing on top of a, a, a pyramid of guys who are then fighting themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so you have the two combatants. You know, you have um, you start with uh, Jet Li and then Sybil Hu are doing their own engagement and then the people they're standing on are fighting each other as well and they're you know they're slowly getting dwindled down and it just is very seamless you get a clear understanding of you know who's left and who's close to falling down and it just it holds up really really well as a comedy though it doesn't get stuck in character skits and the banter that stores the movie it's even if it would have you would have Jet and Josephine to, to entertain us while we may wait for the movie to resume again. Uh, but they, they, it, it has a forward momentum, I think. There's a successful pace and energy using the performance energy. Credit to Corey Yun for controlling this very well, because he is a good director, and uh, he can steer action, and he can steer comedy and action from a nar narrative standpoint. F highlights, like at one point, Jet Li is supposed to hold some uh, a knife against uh, someone's throat, and... Uh, all the characters realize, but we don't. 
until we cut to again that uh, it's not a very scholarly way to say it but it's a cut to gag where he's actually holding a banana instead against this guy uh, you know he's picked up a banana rather than a knife or whatever so sounds simple sounds very lame but there's performer energy here that um, really makes uh, the comedy and uh, the movie's gonna have danger eventually it's gonna have darker stretches it's gonna have some character deaths but for a long stretch we have none and that's that's not bad because it's all amusing and funny the tone is and uh, obviously i can understand if this is too broad for certain audiences but i think it's a it's remained an audience favorite for a reason and not just for action you know we've obviously had this distributed in the west uh, during the 90s and uh, so it's not a completely local impenetrable comedy or anything and uh there's that classic stuff where characters end up in a tree for some reason you know as a as a period uh, period to the gag and that wouldn't have been as funny without josephine for instance you know he, she hits her head on a wall at one point and then ends up in a tree why well it's kind of funny if someone ends up in a tree <laughs> that's it and i find that irresistible sometimes uh, and uh, uh so so broad yes but i don't think it's um I don't think it's the most local Hong Kong comedy to hit uh, hit the West necessarily. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? If the comedy is uh, is too local, or if it's sort of suited for for the world? No, I th- I think there's a good balance. I mean, it, it, a lot of the comedy, as you said, does tend to be cut twos, and it tends to be you know related to physical or, or sometimes prop gags. But the one part I think that really doesn't work for me for this film overall is in the middle. So the idea is that Jet Li is being forced to marry the daughter of um, this this character, Tiger Loy, who's new to the area. He's a big, powerful official. So he doesn't really know that, uh, you know, it's Ting Ting, the girl he likes. He thinks it's somebody else. And so they have this kind of wedding night thing where they're in the room together, but they don't know each, they don't know it's each other. And kind of go off in their own directions. And it's this whole sort of comedy of errors thing that I really think that part for me doesn't work very well. It's it's just, you know, one of those things that they've done a lot in other movies where, you know, it's it's sort of hidden information. But really, should it be? I mean, could, couldn't they have recognized each other's voices or or something to 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 not stretch that out quite so long? I just think for me that if there's a part of the movie that really felt like filler, it was that part where they're playing that comedy of errors section. Yeah, I certainly don't remember it as much or Michelle and Jet's chemistry necessarily. Uh, that 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 is true. I can agree with that. So I, I actually never really made any notes on that section of the film because it kind of passed, uh, passed me by. And in terms of the seriousness of everything, though, there's a scene later, and I don't want to spoil it for people who you know, maybe listening to this and haven't seen it. And if that is you, why are you doing this? You should go out and watch it immediately. But there's a scene later where a certain character does die. That gets to me every time. Yeah, because well the, 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 the relationship that kind of gets established there, it's a, it's a very common kind of thing. It's a common theme that you see in other classic Chinese cinema movies. Initially done as kind of comedy, but then it leads to this dramatic moment that I think just really works very well. And it just got gets to me each time I watch it. I know it's coming, and it's still... Yeah, it, it's certainly very Hong Kong, because they have no qualms about injecting this into what has been mostly a goofy movie. Uh, because this, this is no biggie. 
we can totally take ourselves seriously for a few minutes here. And uh, I, I fairly agree. It's uh, it's well played, requires acting, and uh, certainly one of the players in there is, uh, has uh, veteran uh, veteran acting skills uh, ready to go. One of the fight scenes in the middle involves uh, Jet Li and uh, Vincent Chow. It's mostly, you know, some sections are expectedly grounded. They they do not fly about all the time. It gets more traditional in feel as Jet faces off versus Vincent. Um, you know, so some of the weapons, as they depict the weapons, that gets a little bit more into fantasy territory. Um, you know, the way they bend and uh, how they use them. There, there is some comedy that is true to character within this fight scene that I quite enjoy with Jet Li at one point just blocking and uh, blocking Vincent Chow and hurting himself because he, he stands there and when they stop for a while and he tries to look cool and then ow, 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 ow. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that hurt. But uh, And also there's an undercranked style throughout the movie to, to the action. You know, it, it's definitely, you know, a few frames uh, slower. But I don't think that was terribly bothersome. I think uh, Corey, you know, you know, he shoots it in a way that goes in line with the frantic shooting style of the era anyway, but it doesn't make it into a ping-pong sort of feel to it all. I mean, some of Donnie's movies at this time featured terrible undercranking um, and, and even some of his TV stuff. But I think uh, he, Corey gets it... Uh, Gets it uh, right, but uh, again, man, does it seem like slow work for the choreographers. There's so much to do, because each fight scene has a concept of some sort. There's so much to convey in small cuts, and and uh, again, it's not quick cut as in badly shot. It's just that they can't do more than half a second of work sometimes. And I can't imagine how long some of this stuff takes to shoot, you know? Uh, speaking of the earlier scene where pe- he, pe- people running over people's heads and it's just so much going on man and uh, months and months and months of work for a few minutes of or weeks for a few minutes of film I, I, I gather because it's uh, it's admirable how much they uh, go through voluntarily uh, really uh, as filmmakers here. Yeah it's interesting when you compare the choreographic style in terms of film work for something like you know, an old Shaw Brothers movie like we recently watched uh, uh, Death Duel uh, in preparation for the new Derek E. film Swordsman. And to go back and look at something like that where you're kind of on a closed set and maybe you just have two actors, but you're doing these extensively long takes of action, right, where it's continuous. And you think to yourself, well, my gosh, they, you know, they have to be, have perfect timing and, you know, you're, you're shooting for 30 seconds, maybe a minute sometimes in terms of takes, and then you might cut that down a little bit. And the amount of, you know, intensive work that that would take doing that, but you compare it with something like this where you're setting up shot after shot after shot to get, you know, something like you said that's going to take two or three seconds, and it has to be precise. It has to be exactly perfect. And if it's not, it's reset shoot it again, take two, take three, take four, and you've got extras in the scene and lots of other stuff going on in the background. I'd say that the intensity in terms of just being labor-intensive and the amount of work going into some of the stuff that they're doing here is just extreme. Um, And that's not to discount the kind of work. It's just very different by approach. It's very different by design, and it has different sort of requirements of the people involved. And in each sort of scenario, it seems a wee bit different. You know, we don't get 
two three similar fight scenes that came to the Jet Li and Vincent Chow scene there's always something different going on uh, whether leading up to an action scene uh, to, towards the end where, where you know we won't spoil it but, but by at some point Fong Sayok has to sort of donor more he, he is more engaged in the Red Flower Secret Society and has to be a more righteous, serious character. So at one point, you know, he approaches uh, the the setting of the guillotine towards the end and he rides in on a horse and he lays down, uh, uh, you know, he rides the horse uh, on the side, you know, uh, and he has a sword and he just slices people as he rides by them. It's not the greatest piece of action in a movie, but it's one of those, like, it varies up. It's it's sort of action beats and violent beats, and not all of that is... Um, it, it's not easy to do either, despite being a very simple uh, concept, you know, as you write it on paper. And leading up to all of this for a fairly long movie, I think, uh, you know, as I said, it's not religion to me, this movie, but uh, so I don't sit there and... I'm as dramatically involved as I am with the first few Once Upon a Time in China movies, but it's all coherent and conveyed well, like from goofiness to slightly more slightly more seriousness. And what got to me was the, the sequence involving the guillotine, where Jet Li is uh, fighting for someone he cares for, and uh, the guillotine is connected to a rope. Obviously, that rope is set on fire. Something happens involving a lot more people. Despite this movie not being a drama, kind of got to me that yes, people, people are standing together, you know, and helping, and a lot actually helps here to sell this sequence. It's actually due to um, to Paul Chu, who plays uh, Jet Li's father, because uh, Paul is a great actor, great veteran actor, and um, you know, yeah, most people have seen him in um, in The Killer as uh, the sort of partner to a giant fat character that goes through quite a journey in that one so it helps to have a good actor there that also is ready to play mostly dramatically it's not there for goofy purposes paul is there to sort of (laughs) whip jet and josephine into shape because all they do is goof around so here's the father just needs to okay here we go <laughs> and uh, so that that helps, and uh, the whole it's also also technically a very well uh, cut together because you get the peril that's going on while Jet Li is um, is fighting and all of that. So I thoroughly enjoyed that. I wanted to ask a little bit. Uh, I I obviously Vincent Chow was in this movie. I always got the impression he was never a big hit with audiences in the, in the nineties, but he was always to me a good charismatic actor capable of different roles so, you know my favorite performance of his is probably in a chinese feast where he plays that uh, friendly uh, opponent chef he's continued to work obviously and uh, i looked up uh, what, what are some of his more recent movie credits because i guess he's doing tv and apparently he's in the white hair witch of luna kingdom so i wanted to ask do you remember him from that movie if he did did any good i know you're not it's not a favorite of yours the movie but do you remember vincent if he did any um, any impressive work in that one I remember seeing him in it. It was that it's not a particularly great film, uh, unfortunately. So there's not a lot that can stand out with that film. Um, he's, I think he's somebody who unfortunately is very skilled, but he has lived in the shadow of Jet Li. And, you know, he, he kind of is there to fill that same kind of role. But when you've got a Jet Li, you go to him first. And, and and Choi Hak certainly tried his damnedest, yeah. but the audiences would not connect to him. I mean, uh, doing the Blade, and Blade was just a fucking flop. And the Chinese Feast is not a lead role, but he's great in the Chinese Feast. But it's it's Leslie and um, 
Anita Jun, obviously, that people are going to go to see. I think he's more than capable. He just hasn't found the the right kind of role for international audiences, I think. And he has done television work, and I think he's been able to make a solid living, you know, doing what he does between films and between TV stuff. It's just unfortunate that he's kind of been relegated to to that, you know, to being, you know, given opportunities to play a Wong Fei Hong or to play a role that somebody maybe wanted to Jet Li to do, but Jet Li wasn't available. And so he's like, you know, the guy they would go to. But I think you're right. He's, you know, I really liked him in in, in The Chinese Feast. What was the the film from a few years ago? Um, was it Wu Dang? True, true legend. Yeah, he was he was okay in that. I think Wu Dang. He was okay. I you know I kind of like that film a little bit. So you know, there's definitely a chance for him to maybe catch a role that can establish him a little bit better. You know, as a as a different kind of character. Maybe that'll come along in the near future. S- certainly, still got mileage in his career. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, I'll I'll conclude my notes here. So I'll I'll leave it to you if you want to mention uh, anything else. You know, I again, this is um, something that I think back fondly on. I don't, like I said, I don't really consider it a top list classic, but maybe um, somewhere between, you know, second tier and top list. There's a moment too that if you're a fan of soundtracks uh, in this film, uh, and you've paid attention to Hong Kong cinema. Uh, when Fong Sayok is fighting with his mother against Vincent Zhao, in they're in a warehouse, I think, or in a dye house of some sort, and they're fighting together, um, they start playing this musical riff, which is taken from a film the year before, uh, Andy Lau film called Moon Warriors. It's for me, it's just because I've seen Moon Warriors so many times that I've got like the musical soundtrack to that film <laughs> burned into my brain. So when it popped up here in this film, I was like, oh yeah, Moon, okay. The riff in Moon Warriors may very well be taken from somewhere else. I'm not sure. There was a period of time where it seemed like this was something they would do. They they had, uh, you know, a bunch of different musical tracks that they might use across different films for whatever reason. I guess they had the rights to do so. Yeah, for, for Moon Warriors, but it was always amusing for, for the UK VHS promo trailer for the Moon Warriors. So they, they cut together a really good trailer, but mainly it was, it was great... Um, because they used uh, one of the um, themes from uh, The Big Gun Down, the, uh, the western that Ennio Morricone scored, uh, which I, I seen, I, I've not seen a movie, listen to the soundtrack all the time, because it's a rousing score, and that fit Moon Warriors uh, to the T, uh, but, but, but I don't think they used it in the movie, ultimately. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, Morricone is someone uh, Hong Kong filmmakers, uh, especially Kung Fu filmmakers, leaned on a lot. And uh, but uh, hey, uh, the man, the man's still doing good. He wasn't uh, driven to poverty just because Hong Kong filmmakers uh, couldn't be asked to uh, to pay for rights. Uh, okay, now uh, as for availability for Fong Sayok, it's been issued a couple of times on Hong Kong DVD. Uh, there was an early Universe DVD, uh, late '90s or something, from a cinema print with burned-in subtitles. Uh, that was replaced by a so-called remaster that did not look very hot. Um, and same goes for the sequel, by the way. And uh, and, and both those editions are out of print by now. The uh, label Pioneer in Japan uh, probably put out the best-looking version of the full uncut edit of the movie, but it never had English subtitles, expectedly. It's also out of print, but um, for a more available and affordable version, the Dragon Dynasty slash Vivendi Entertainment DVD and Blu-ray, 
and it's also by the way out in uh, in the UK uh, distributed by Cinesia that just repackaged repackaged the Dragon Dynasty DVD uh, that that was released as the Legend of Fong Sayoki it is the US edit of the film which is shortened by 10 minutes or so including some violence and comedy but they do offer up a Cantonese audio option so as an edit it might play okay, play okay. for for a long while in the West anyway, we only had it English dubbed in this edit. But, but by now, they do offer up multi, um, multi-language options, which is uh, the way to do it. I don't know if the subtitles is based on the US dub or if it is a translation, however. So um, we'll have to find that out uh, for ourselves. The uh, the HD master for, for Blu-ray is reportedly okay. It's a bit on the old side, but it is okay. They didn't um, treat it afterwards and scrubbed it and removed grain and stuff like that. So... Um, and and it's all affordable and, and out there and, and in print. Uh, there was also, by the way, an alternate or even extended Taiwanese edit of the film that had a Taiwanese laser disc, I believe. But it's nothing I've encountered. I just saw it in the V versions uh, listing when I looked online. And uh, this was no surprise coming from movies at this time that they had a slightly longer Taiwanese edit. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, don't know if it, if, if it even was subtitled, but... Um, it was out there for a, for a bit. Uh, so that's it for Fong Sayoko. And, and by the way, we um, we didn't mention it, but uh, the same year, uh, a, a direct sequel came out. So presumably they shot uh, Fong Sayoko 1 and 2 at the same time because it's the same uh, cast and crew and all of that. And um, Okay, buddy, let's take a musical break. Uh, I'm, I'm going to play you. Uh, I've specifically found a piece I'm going to play. I'm going to play you the English language version of the Sam Hoi song in the middle of Ace's Got Places Free during the romantic montage, because I enjoy it so much when we get a chance to hear Sam sing in English. So I'm going to play you that from Ace's Got Places Free, because you're all sick of the theme by now, so let's uh, bring in something new. And after that musical break, we're going to discuss Ace's Got Places Free, our man from Bond Street. So sit tight, and we'll be back. There's someone who can take it away Deep in the night While you're sleeping She can steal it away Before you've even noticed Hold on to your heart Just one look And she'll lead you astray Welcome back, and uh, this uh, half of the show, the last half of the show, will cover uh, Aces Go Places Free, our man from Bond Street. Yep, now it's been firmly Bond here, and uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, tell you the plot, and uh, you'll understand why it's firmly Bond this time around. Uh, so, plot from the Love HK film review of the film once again. Third in the series goes international, as the producers bring in a couple of known faces to further the laughs. While vacationing in Paris, King Kong, played by Sam Hoy, gets attacked by... Odd job, which is not Harold Sakata, obviously, because he would have been a bit too old, but it's a, a Japanese uh, cast member called Sugiyama Tet, uh, Tsuneharo. And if my Googling was right, this was actually a wrestler. And I think Harold Sakata, Odd job from Goldfinger, was also a wrestler. He wasn't Japanese, though. I think he was uh, from Hawaii. So I think uh, that was it. But uh, And uh, other than Odd job attacking him, uh, we got Big G, played by Richard Keel, i.e., Jaws from. Two of the James Bond movies, Moonraker and one of the other ones. Uh, after the necessary fight, uh, King Kong is enlisted by 
the fake Bond, played by presumably a French actor, Jean Marsant, and a Queen Elizabeth lookalike to steal the crown jewels from the Hong Kong police. However, this means working against best buddy Kodo Jack or Baldy or Albert, played by Carl Macca, who is busy trying out parenthood with, in- with Inspector Ho, played by Sylvia Chiang. Their new spear ball child, Junior, is the rugrat in question, Baldy Junior. Never mind that Kodo Jack comes home to find a kid alone. That's good parenting for you, in parenthesis, from Koso's plot. It's the possibility of Kodo Jack straying that makes his wife angry. This family dysfunction is put aside when uh, King Kong begins uh, his heist, however. Then they learn that Bomb is in fact a scam artist out to steal the jewels and sell them back to an Arab collector. And uh, that's where an American agent comes on the scene, played by Peter Graves of Mission Impossible fame, the TV series Mission Impossible. And the three band together sort of to stop Bond from stealing the jewels. So uh, I'll, I'll do my quick opinion. First of all, it, uh, it goes international to a good effect without seeming desperate or uh, to, you know, to matter. Uh, and it doesn't leave the formula behind either. I think the character banter is actually a bit approved after, my, after the mildly disappointing second one, and the disappointment came from the fact that Sylvia Chang was excluded from a lot of... Uh, from a lot of the events in, in the second one. And while it's not big on stunts and big chase action set pieces, Choi Ha crafts many out-of-this-world cartoony or even implausible scenes and scenarios for, for this series even. It goes like off the rails to an extent. And it looks fairly impressive, has an expensive look uh, production design-wise, uh, but somewhat rooted, um, at least in terms of the big vehicular stunts and things like that. Uh, but it ticks the box as well, is my point, so I quite like it. Uh, so what do you think in short of uh, Aces Go Places free? Well, my memory of this seemed to have deceived me a little bit because I came away from this viewing perhaps not liking it quite as much as I liked the first two. I remember this being a film that was larger than life, and I guess that was because of the shock and awe I felt at them having been able to get people like Richard Keel and Peter Peter Graves um, to have significant presence in a Hong Kong movie. Um, So, you know, that really shows through with the budget here. I think for me, though, the the focus on character comedy a little bit is lost here. And it shows up much better in the first and second film under the direction of Eric Tsang. Whereas I think Tsui Hark is perhaps a little bit too focused on toys and special effects. That That is. I actually have some notes on the fact that the special effects are not they haven't aged well at all, some of them. Uh, they're, they're a bit too experimental and fails in their experimentation. But um, yeah. You know, it is an interesting extension because they do a lot more location shooting, it seems. You've got, you know, sort of the opening sequence, which is, I guess, some of it is taking place in in Paris. And some of it's being, you know, shot close up to give the impression of Paris. Um, But, you know, anytime a Hong Kong film has got the money to then go abroad and to bring in known foreign actors from the outside, that's an impressive, you know, an impressive thing. And it shows the success that the series has had to this point. Yeah, Cinema City were forward thinkers, man. And uh, I wonder what Peter Graves... I mean, Peter Graves did the first run of uh, Mission Impossible. I only saw the reboot, if you will, that happened in the late 80s. Uh, That was what was on TV for me. I always confused him with Leslie Nielsen when I was young, which is silly, but it was like, grey hair, grey hair, those must be the same guys. Uh, But I wonder what Peter Graves was most... If he was still writing the uh, like, like the fame of Mission Impossible at that time, or... If Hong Kong filmmaker saw him in an airplane, like that guy, we gotta get that guy. <laughs> you know, if it's a classic role in airplane too. 
I don't know if the Hong Kong audience was tuned into that, but certainly the filmmakers were, and that's especially apparent if you watch the international version which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I think that is very much true that Cinema City were in tune with that because the previous year they'd gone after makeup effects artist Tom Savini for their little silly local ghost comedy Till Death Do We Scare to do some makeup effects and, uh, and masks and puppetry and what have you. So it's not like Tom Savini was like connected to Hong Kong otherwise. Uh, you know, Tom had, you know, Friday the 13th and The Burning and the Dawn of the Dead and things like that on his resume. So I, I, I think Carl Mack and Dean Sheck and the likes, uh, they, they had their eye on the West and uh, it, uh, it, looks, uh, pre- it looks pretty cool. I mean, it isn't a pre-sequence, by the way, but it has short credits, this movie, and then Paris starts. But it might as well have been a pre-sequence akin to a Bond movie. I think it's definitely what they're, what they're riffing for in, um, in feel. Uh, it's, it, it opens amusingly enough. Uh, Sam Hoy wears his infatuation with women on his sleeve because he's looking through this uh, pair of binoculars looking for something and he all he keeps looking at is butts. <laughs> you know, trying to acquire his target. Like, looking at women in uh, tight uh, tight legging pants and what have you. And then uh, all of that gets uh, interrupted. You know, b- b- because you have the odd job character not not played by Harold Sakata and Richard Keel and the location shooting and all of that and a lot of things happening in this first sequence alone. Do, do you think they're too eager to please Cinema City because they go underwater, they meet James Bond in quotation marks and it's a bit shark, big shark and there's so much man that you think like are they putting all their sort of uh, their investment here in this movie in this first sequence and nothing else is gonna nothing else is gonna pan out i mean do you think they're trying to too much cinema city to place here well i think it's not apparent at the start i think that it you know it gets off to a good and interesting start and james bond is a character who's very recognizable for a hong kong audience it's a character that has been um riffed on and made fun of in other movies you know stephen chow movies and and other films make fun of the 007 agent. What is Stephen Chow? It's uh, 006, right? Ling Ling Fat, Ling Ling Fat, or something like that. In uh, his two movies. Yeah, and then Louis Koo, I think it's Louis Koo, does one a few years back um, on His Majesty's Secret Service. Or it's, I, I don't, I'm not good with names this morning. I do apologize. The character itself is well known. Of course, you've got some. Uh, I don't know. Was it the gold man with the golden gun, which features the Bottoms Up Club in Hong Kong? And um, Hong Kong has been the backdrop for more recent Bond films. I'm thinking of, uh, was it Pierce Bronson and Tomorrow Never Dies? Yeah, they might have. I mean, they, they had they had Michelle there. I'm, I, I don't remember if they ever went to Hong Kong, but it's certainly a, a decent entry. Uh, but n- notice, by the way, they don't call in James Bond in this movie. I'm not sure if they could or simply just avoided doing it for the sake of the gag, because after Sam has been chased and all of that, and uh, he jumps off the Eiffel Tower, uh, you know, the fight with Richard Keel is not, by the way, exceptional, but they have a little fun and, and with makeup, you know, enlarging Richard Keel's face as he breathes in, you know, the fire extinguisher um, content and all of that. And he drops into the water, and then a shark comes, dun, 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 and the shark is a big headquarters and uh, hideout for... A man with a gun that looks strangely like Sean Connery. And he's posing like Sean did in the posters. You know, with a gun and two uh, babes by his side. 
it's not like Sean ever sat like that in a movie, man. It's just the poster art, like the Doctor No poster art. But they never say that he never says like Bond, James Bond, either in English or Cantonese, because he says, "I've got a license to kill, and you know my name." So, so I wonder if they weren't allowed. Maybe they weren't allowed. Yeah, they probably wanted to avoid as much uh, licensing issues as they possibly could. And it's interesting too, when in that first scene and then later in the film too, whenever the sub shows up when they're like in the water. And the sub is coming prior to them playing sort of the Jaws music. They play whale song for some reason. It's like, why Why is whale song suddenly indicative of a giant shark-like sub? I don't know. But they, whoever the sound designer was thought it would be a good thing to throw in. There's a lot of like, of course, moments in this movie. Like, of course they have this. Of course they do that. That's why I think it goes off the rails in terms of implausible even for this series, which I think is funny for me, for me that especially with Latin gags. Uh, towards the end of the movie, it's just like, of course, of course, it has. He, he, no one's ever going to be in danger in this movie because, of course, they always have something. I enjoy it. I mean, I also I always enjoy um, where they uh, when they continue to extend like Sam Hoyce. He can easily he can be easily manipulated. Just place a woman in front of him <laughs> when he runs into that projection of a woman running into a beach while they're in the submarine, and Sam puts on that silly like happy face and then runs towards her and it's a projection and uh, that all thing continues but is that fun for third time around or is it just like the same gag again for you well i mean it is a continuation of the character and sort of his foibles you know being a soft touch when it comes to women sort of the opposite of, of a james bond if you will at the same time the one thing i did notice about this film and they they do have one scene a bit later on where you get our three key leads together kind of playing off each other in a verbal manner, but it just doesn't seem like they get that same kind of tempo that they had, especially in the first film, and and did have somewhat in the second film. It seems like, you know, again, they're trying for it, but it's just not there. It seems like, whereas in the first film, Karl Maka's character, he was not dumb. There were times where he could get the upper hand yeah. on King Kong, and it seems like by this one, he's kind of become the punching bag. He's kind of become the late season Homer Simpson, <laughs> where they've dumbed him down enough to be solely comic relief right. um, for the most part, which which I think is a little bit of a detriment to the film because I think it was better when they were all kind of on equal playing footing in that first end film and, and to some extent the second film. Yeah, I, I can see that. Uh, I I was happy, though, to see them all interact the way they did. Uh, the, the lie detector sequence doesn't rival the um, interrogation sequence from the first one, which is a bit more simpler in uh, concept. But I, I was very happy to see them interact. And there, there is some funny stuff in the lie detection sequence that, that where Carl Macca shines. Because I guess I don't mind him being dumb because he plays that very, very, very well. I'm not saying that to be uh, negative towards him. I just think Macca uh, embraces that. Um, Balder Jr., a good or bad addition for the movie to have a have a baby and that looks kind of abused in this movie because they make <laughs> the baby cry so damn much, man. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. There was there's one scene where they very clearly threw him down on a sofa. And he immediately starts <laughs> crying, and you know there's no child labor laws. He, I, What's his name, by the way? If you if you it's um as uh, it's Cyrus Wong Wong Kaming. Um, you know he goes on to to do other films as as he gets older. And it's but you see him here and it's just like 
you know, he's a baby. He's not acting. He's just being a baby. But they do get him to do a couple things. There's a scene early on where there's a woman over who's supposed to be, you know, a babysitter. And here, too, you know, talk about politically incorrect and being in the, you know, in the 90s and the things I guess you could, or no, was this 84, being in the 80s and the things that were, I guess, okay to be shown on screen. So very early on, Carl Maka's character comes home and the baby is there on the floor by himself. Okay. Nobody else is there. With electricity around him, appliances and shit. No, no, no safety plugs plugged in the electrical outlets or any other thing. You know, no, no safety cushions on the corners. He's just there by himself at home playing on the floor. Uh, Sylvia Chang, she's gone out to the market. I guess, because she really needed something from the market or something. They're both working still, man. No, he's not a stay-at-home dad, and, and, neither, and no, neither is she. neither is she. But, you know, and there was apparently supposed to be, you know, a helper, an elder helper coming over, and she ends up sending her daughter. That's established the thing. But I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, you know. But the, the irony is that this kind of stuff does happen still today. There, There's occasional news stories come up where, you know, kids were left at home. And, you know, because they didn't have anybody to watch them and they just locked the door and and left them home. And and that's but to show it cinematically, I don't think you could get away with that today. <laughs> you know, Probably I, not. I mean, the, the whole sequence is also um, it's not vintage Choi Hak um, bedroom force. He, he does that way better in Shanghai Blues uh, where people are hiding in closets and things are going from worse to worse. But I, I can't say I had a bad time seeing Carl Macca just his situation escalate more and more to a point where his tie gets stuck in uh, the back zipper of the very good looking uh, uh, babysitter because it's it's just sort of <laughs> I think the line towards the end of the sequence where Sylvia essentially you know is waiting for an explanation and he says there's no use if I try and explain any of this because it's Look at it. Look at this. <laughs> as, a, as a sequence it does work really well in terms of the progression in terms of the the raid at things which happen. And, and as I was saying, they do get the baby to pose well in a couple scenes. So there's a scene where, because it's the baby that ends up unzipping her dress. It's very aware, that baby, of uh, what to do. <laughs> well, and the shot is he's he's reaching for the actress's back. And I'm guessing they stuck like a lollipop or something, or maybe a, you know, <laughs> a, a Snuggie doll or something that he knew and knew to reach for. On her back, because it's a very clear shot of him, you know, reaching for that area. But you, she's turned in such a way so that he can't see, you know. It, it, you know. There's obviously not a sign back there that's directing him as an actor saying, reach here, reach here, right? That would be an awesome baby if they did that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then it's a cutaway to like this little hand, this little hand kind of like unzipping. And so it's, it's well strung together in terms of the com- comedic beats of that sequence. They were better together in the first um, Sylvia and Carl, even though they weren't. The the concept of marriage wasn't uh, on on the cards or anything. But um, I, <laughs> she reacts well to his shit, you know. That she puts up with so much. Not that he's a bad person; he just gets into trouble, and they obviously um, gets in business with uh, Sam more than he should. But uh, I think they're good together. I, I love her reaction to being instantly choked up at that uh, corny heart necklace that uh, he gives her. I say corny. I mean, it's sincere enough, but it's uh, it's not the best looking jewelry you you'll see uh, ever. And uh, I guess why I liked this better was that they, it reverted back to some things I liked from the first, even though it's not as good as the first. With, with, with the first one, she was like a side character, and I didn't like that. I I would I like when they are more together and she has more 
uh, room to play because she, she's a good comedian and uh, good actress and and all of that. So it's not classic clever banter, but it all it's the tone and the fast nature to the banter. It's it's a comfort factor, and I think they rebound a little bit compared to um, to two. But by four, it started to um, wear thin a little bit. But before is so different because, uh, as someone said on Facebook, there, there's a difficulty liking part four because these characters are, characters are now very, are very much now victimized. You know, there's more violence in the fourth one, uh, and all of that is more serious. Um, even though it's funny too, but we'll we'll get to four eventually it's funny though I'm, I'm sure you know Choi Hak went through some faces during his early filmmaking years especially angry faces um, you know so, so it's amusing that he just two years or three years after angry movies like Don't Play With Fire or Dangerous Encounter First Kind and then Zoo of course big special effects vehicle that he just settled into comedy and that speaks to his um, skill as a filmmaker because uh, Choi Hak as a comedy director is something I enjoy very much. Don't ask me to quote any content that was in his movie Working Class, but I remember enjoying that very much. You know, uh, Sam Hoy again and himself um, in a supporting role. So, Choi Hak directing comedies, um, especially during this time, is something I enjoy uh, enjoy very much. It's a bit of a relief to see him uh, have fun after being angry and, uh, like, putting his all into special effects uh, movies like Sue. That, uh, uh, what do you think of that? Do you prefer Choi a certain way as director? For me, I think I'm in terms of the com- comedy and the comedic beats. Again, I think Eric Zhang was maybe that was a bit more of his area in the first two films. I and again, I think that there's a very clear division for me in this film between what he's trying to do with the comedy and what to me seems to be his focus on the effects things. And while the comedy still plays, it still holds up, the effects maybe don't. And maybe it could have, he could have gone, you know, if we say it's like a 40 60 split, maybe he could have gone 60 40 and put a bit more into the comedy and maybe done a little bit less with the effects. A little bit more physical effects would have been uh, preferable because I know these movies could do more physical effects. Uh, but the heist gadgetry uh, still is fun. Uh, I, I think still is fun. Uh, the first heist of the Sam's, we see the gadgetry reveal and the way he creates that little tunnel that's uh, a mirror at the same time and that way he can go through the alarm system um, where uh, that's uh, you know it's full of laser sensors and all of that and they're, they're, for the time anyway in Hong Kong there's some pretty advanced uh, CGI almost full CGI shots here that looks okay but it's more the composite shots in the movie like when uh, he mixes miniatures and uh, surroundings that they paste in afterwards uh, surrounding rooftops and all of that to um, to make the illusion that we're high up in the air that that's the kind of stuff that where they place elements together that doesn't work as well but uh, the uh, the heist stuff is um, is fun to see and uh, the, the the first sign of this movie just making up its own rules and we shouldn't really be uh, concerned with logic is um, the way Sam breaks into and actually takes that first diamond. For some reason, this alarm system has a tic-tac-toe game, and he loses that, but he has his own extra piece, tenth piece of the tic-tac-toe game, and he wins it by just attaching it to the thing. Of course he has that. (laughs) Of course he has that. Of course that's gonna work. Okay. You've argued your point, movie. I'm in. <laughs> so, I said the stunt work is a bit reduced and it's not always successful. There's a latter sequence involving like Mad Max style cars and stuff that I think is uh, just goes by without any effect. But um, I, I guess the skateboard stunt and the chase downhill is um, it's a little sequence um, 
but it's probably the one that works the best, I think. Yeah, that uh, almost jet-powered skateboard. And thank God, by the way, I'm sure you've seen this in Hong Kong. Thank God they play skateboard ramps uh, as you go downhill in strategic places, right? Oh, yeah, there's one in every corner, you know, just for the, your average trip to work. Is that the common sort of like the streets with uh, continual downhill uh, sections? Or could you identify what that was because it's so unique in Hong Kong? Uh, no, I wasn't really paying attention to that part uh, in terms of the location. It's pretty, it's, I'd say, you know, you do get hilly areas, mostly on Hong Kong Island, mm-hmm. where you can do stuff like that. You know, equally, they could have done it a couple places in Kowloon. Uh, the thing that I noticed, though, was because he's supposed to be, we're talking about sort of a James Bond-esque style thing. So he's got gadgets, right? And one of the first gadgets we're introduced to is early on when he's underwater, he's got these jet shoes, you know, that <laughs> release jets of, of air that allow him to, you know, swim and try and get away from the, the shark sub, but they don't work too well. And then here he's got this skateboard and it's supposed to be a jet skateboard. And here's one where I'm thinking, all right, they went the practical route, but maybe they could have done a bit more because basically they just tie a smoke bomb onto the bottom of a skateboard. And it's a guy, it's a stunt guy skating down the hill with a smoke bomb going off underneath the skateboard. And it's the sound of like some some jet sound effect going. And I'm like, oh, okay, for, you know, practical solution for the win. But it just made me laugh. Yeah, I, I agree. I, mean, I think the more successful aspect of the sequence is uh, the the more physical stunts that the guy on the skateboard, who's uh, probably attached to a wire, and uh, the skateboard is attached uh, to him as well. But uh, as he goes over the cars and downhill, I think that's the better stunt sequence. But uh, they don't focus too much on on that, which could be a little bit disappointing. But then again, you don't need to do every everything the same uh, the same way each and every movie. And um, so that's uh, that's cool. I think even though you might not have picked up the, um, or rather liked as much the sort of banter and uh, pace at, of banter between the three, I still think the lie detector sequence is hilarious. Yes, uh, Carl Macca is being, uh, you know, the butt of the joke here. But I, I kind of love the dynamic regardless because they, they put Sam in the, in the lie detector chair and obviously of course the lie detector has a boxing glove attached to it so whenever you says a li- uh, you uh, whenever you say a lie a boxing glove will come down beat you on the head and a little brush will come out and brush your hair for you of course it's 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 such a three stooges <laughs> <Exactly>. kind <laughs> of gadget <laughs> and then uh, for Carl Macca's hair because well he has no hair it's uh, it polishes his dome if you will and i i think that's wonderful because when sam it recaps the sequence where they're in the restaurant and Colmaca is busy with the woman. Colmaca realizes, oh my god, he, he references that. Oh my god, I can't lie in front of the wife because you had the green light and the red light for lies and uh, just goes from worse to worse to worse. I know I'm not explaining the sequence very well, so just watch it. But I love when he gets so desperate that he hushes at the green light or and covers up the green light with a like a napkin or something just to go, go away don't do it. what are you doing to me <laughs> yeah uh, and 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 the scene is um the, the design of the room is ludicrous as well because why have like soft spikes across the walls <laughs> because they are soft you can see that as they open the door they're it's just, probably just the sound studio that they booked <laughs> is that what what you were referencing that that you think a sequence like this isn't uh, up to that same excellent level as one as they banter back and forth i mean it worked but it felt like you know they were just trying to recapture 
some of what they did in the interrogation sequence in the first one and, and some of that banter in the second one. And it was, again, it was very uneven, you know, and I do agree. I think Carl Maka does a great job, but he was so much smarter in the first one. You know, it's like he, he had moments where he was the one who came on top and here it's just like, he's constantly the victim. And, and that works. I just, I, I liked the, the balance of the chemistry a little bit more in the first film. I, I agree, because when you see the first initial scenes uh, after he arrives in the first one and he has his first scene with Sylvia, he, he's in control, he is smart um, and uh, confident as well, even though he arrives in a silly wig. Yeah, now he's just henpecked husband all the way. Exactly. <laughs> uh, looking miserable all the way as he gets into trouble, and, um, and uh, sometimes rightly so, obviously. One thing to do, to note about this scene too is um, I think it's in the scene or it might be in the sequence just prior to it. We do get um, the introduction of a couple cameos in the form of Ricky Hoy and uh, John Chum. Why does John Chum has um, have silly facial hair? Explain it. I don't know. I you know it's just uh, just because. Uh, yeah, yeah, he had like fake. Uh, it looked like he had a fake, uh, fake glasses and fake mustache on that, that they bought at the Halloween store or whatever. Could have been, yeah. There's not a point at all other than John show up. We have some silly glasses and facial hair for you, and you get to stand next to Peter Graves from Mission Impossible in airplane. Remember him? Nope. Well, we do. <laughs> so stand next to him. Even Ricky Hoy. I mean, it's it's a silly role, but um, it wasn't uh, something that he, he, he does well. But it's not. I, I've seen him being used better in in other movies. Uh, but but hey, we, at least we got two of the Hoys in one movie. Uh, Sans Michael. So um, that's always something, I suppose. Uh, uh, one sequence that's big, but it's actually it's a failed sequence slash so Im- completely implausible that it somehow works. Uh, when Sam escapes on the little rocket, he's lying on top of this thing that's a rocket, and Carl Macca catches the rocket midair and flies through Hong Kong, and he's horizontal all the way. He just keeps on hanging, he keeps hanging on to that thing without dropping, and they go through the underground, they go through the MTR station, and he keeps holding on to that, staying horizontal all the way. I think it's so stupid and so silly that it becomes sort of sort of very funny but it's so implausible and the effects work is not very good actually uh, they uh, they are you know simply pasted in from a blue or green screen environment you can see the wires at some point so it's not very successful they, they do take on a little bit much but it's part of that theme though that we're not dealing with realism, so we're going to do whatever the hell we want. And uh, Carl Macca's arms are going to be perfectly fine after hanging on to that rocket for about five minutes. And and just the fact that, that they can maintain enough speed for him to remain horizontal, you know, and not get dragged along the ground or anything, especially when they go into the MTR, it, your suspension of disbelief is just going to have a hard, hard time. There. Even for this kind of series, because they, they they invest a lot in this sequence, and that's what I mean by, regardless if it was Choi Haku who was pushing for special effects, they do take on a little bit too much here for uh, for their... Uh, and maybe that that's why part four is a little bit more grounded uh, slash more violent. Uh, Ringo, Ringo Lam was brought on board. Now now shit gets real. You mentioned Carl Macca is pretty stupid in this movie, and... Uh, one of my favorite sort of stupid lines, like, come on, like, let the thought get stuck in your filter for once, right? They are having a briefing about who the uh, oil shake is and uh, what he's doing and uh, that he's been dealing with James Bond, so to say. So they talk about that they are going to sell um, sell the jewels to an oil shake called Abbas. 
and I think it's called Maka just quickly blurts out a bus. Like, come on, man. You're a police officer. Like, think for a while. Try and act clever at least one time this week. <laughs> uh, like, there's no filter between thought and mouth for him. So, uh, there, there is that. Uh, I'll, I'll conclude my notes there. I, I mentioned the Mad Max inspired sort of um, car chase. I don't think that's very good at all because it's it just sort of comes and goes. And uh, it, it t- the Aces Go Places boxes are ticked quite well. I, I like uh, some of the big concepts. And I, I'm amused by the fact that they, we will get the character banter back to a level I appreciate. But yes, it's not up to par with one or anything. And uh, and uh, oh, oh, by the way, uh, uh, these characters are so so well prepared for peril that you can't even drown them because they're, they're bound to be equipped with um, in a, an inflatable boat inside their clothes. And that happens. <laughs> so it's it's one of those, come on, okay. Oh, of course Sam has that. It's one of those things that you, you just have to buy that. Uh, they're uh, they're ready for anything. You know, nuclear explosion, they probably have a like a nuclear bomb shelter in their pocket. <laughs> uh, before we talk a little bit more the, avail- the availability and some of the things that are worth noting about the international edit of the film, I'll, I'll leave it to you to share any other notes if you have them. Let's see. Uh, another quick cameo you can spot is Lowell Lowe, who shows up as a train conductor at one point. I think it's during that same flying sequence. And this is a Christmas movie. Uh, there is a Christmas scene, and there's a, actually a pack of flying Santas. So if you're looking for another Hong Kong Christmas movie to watch, it wasn't released at Christmas, I don't believe, but you you can you can get a little bit of Christmas out of this. Uh, also of note, uh, Charlie Cho fans. Uh, Charlie Cho is here with a very quick... As Mr. Cho. Mr. Cho, yes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So it's always good to see him. That, by the way, uh, uh, so sorry about the Charlie Cho cameo. I know this movie isn't playing anything realistic, but when uh, they shoot shoot, uh, the gun like close to his ear and uh, and part of his glasses go off, I'm I'm just thinking like, come on, are you going to make the guy deaf? It was like the Copland scene where they actually did that thing to Stallone, right? They, They shot off a gun next to his... Uh, other year, I believe he had already uh, he already had like uh, less uh, less hearing in uh, on one side, but uh, I, I know it's not playing any anything realistically here. But and, and Charlie Cho still looking like a kid, he's not quite adult yet. He was gonna be adult later. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but but yeah, you were mentioned about the Road Warrior sequence. Yeah, well. the the Road Warrior scene where you know just these dozen dune buggies show up and guys in leather with axes just you know show up driving around hong kong yeah that's an, another scene not quite as bit as hard to take as the 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 flying uh uh sky thing that you know sam and and uh carl Macca fly on but again moments like that where i think they're trying to throw in you know they're thr- trying to throw in a big chase sequence like we had in the first and the second film more out of the idea that they think they have to have that in there than anything else perhaps uh, i'm not sure and then, yeah, the the funny thing that I did notice in that scene is the characters are driving a little yellow Toyota. It's a four-door, kind of, you know, like a Tercel or Corolla that is kind of, it looks very similar to the make and model of what common Hong Kong taxis are today. But they actually have a blower, a little blower sticking up on the hood, a custom, a custom hood blower on this little Toyota. Again, it's a Mad Max reference, and it just looks ridiculous. And it, but it did make me chuckle um, to see that, that that little attention to detail there. The ending standoff that we get to for me was a bit of a head scratcher because it's basically our villain with the, the Baldy Junior, you know, and a gun, and it's like 
okay, I'm here, I've got the kid, and give me money. And he's like <laughs> on top of this industrial mill. I'm like, wait a minute, this is this is your plan? <laughs> it's, you've stuck yourself up on top of this thing that, you know, you're going to have a very difficult time getting down from and and shouting down at people. It, it just it, it just seemed like such a a weird way to, to have this sort of final standoff moment. But I guess it does, you know, that's what they expect, uh, you know, secret agent villains to be like when they've they've lost all other options, right? So yeah, it's it's you know it's good to watch this for the cameos and for some of the fun moments. I think the special effects bring it down a little bit, uh, but it's still you know it's not it's not the worst of the series. I would say for me, the cameos by the Western actors kind of seem a little bit out of place. And at one point, I was thinking. And I wrote a note that um, it almost feels like a step removed from a Godfrey Ho film at times <laughs> as a result, you know, because it's just and especially when we talk about the international version, the way this stuff gets sort of tacked in and it doesn't feel seamless as a result. Yeah, I wasn't expecting them to um, share many scenes with them, but they are very, very separate from especially Peter Graves is very, very separate from uh, from all these guys. I mean, Richard Keel at least gets that fight with Sam Hoy that that's okay you, you you they do some stuff rather than just have some dialogue back and forth but uh, it's a selling point I guess but it's not the best uh, sort of a case I of uh, a talent or be, being brought in if you can call them a talent I mean maybe that uh, honor in terms of reporting a talent uh, in a Hong Kong movie belongs to Gen Y cops yeah, <laughs> <laughs> do you remember Paul? I never, I never got that far. I never got to Paul Rudd in Chen Y Cops because Edison was just shouting his mouth off and trying to be black, and it was just unbearable. Do you remember if Paul Rudd was even any good in that, or he was just sort of like, I'm getting paid, I guess. He's not very good. He's got like blonde curly hair. He just doesn't resemble the Paul Rudd we all know and love today. He didn't wear, um, uh, he didn't wear any cologne made out of actual panther or anything. I, who knows? You know, <laughs> any any with, with you know with Edison on set, anything's possible. I guess <laughs> made of actual panther. <laughs> One other note that I did have was the girl who's sort of the femme fatale of the film is an actress. Uh, where can I find her name? Yeah, uh, Naomi Atsubo. And unlike like many actresses in some of these films, this was like her only real credit. Um, she didn't go on to do much else. I did see on IMDb she has a credit in Magnum PI. Um, uh, a couple years later and and not much beyond that so um, and I think she did a really good job in the film and you can tell that in some of the scenes especially if you watch the international version she is doing English dialogue yeah yeah so you know that was interesting and the girl who the woman who actress who plays the queen she has a very interesting name Hugette Funfrock I don't know if that's a stage name or that's her actual name, but that is awesome. Okay, if your name is Hugette Funfrock for real, that is a, that is excellent. And if you pick that as a stage name, it is equally excellent, and you should get much more roles just based on that alone. It sounds almost like a send up of uh, a name that a royal would have something, and you got Frock in the title as well. So. Yes, indeed, Hugette. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy um, okay uh, I'll go talk availability first and then some notes on the international version that you, you can share as well because I think we, we noticed the same things that were different from the Hong Kong edit but uh, as for availability Fortune Star holds the rights to the film and the series and have put out uh, 1 through 5 on Blu-ray and in a Blu-ray box set and there's also single and boxed um, 
uh, single editions available for for them and a DVD box set as well. Uh, there are probably uh, you know knowing Fortune Star, there are upscales from the standard definition DVD versions, and uh, they have remixes only. But uh, uh, DVD set, by the way, is out of print, so the Blu-rays are the ones um, the only ones you can get. I have the DVD set; it looks pretty good. It doesn't sound good throughout the movies. One and two, I think, had genuine mono options i mean all have but some of them aren't genuine mono the thing is because when i listen to the third one and maybe it was true for the fourth one if you listen to the mono track there's like whatever effects are concerned like if someone breaks a window you can hear the sound like twice or an echo of the sound and if you switch to the 5.1 option that granted have new effects but not as grating effects as usual when it comes to fortune star those sounds aren't repeated in the same way. They're nearly impossible to listen to that way. That does, is, it's that strange echo thing. And uh, welcome to Fortune Star, not getting the basics uh, right. And uh, I think for five, uh, four and five, um, you could definitely hear that this is just a remix uh, downgraded to a 2.0 option, which is uh, bogus, of course. But uh, I've heard worse, uh, but um, it's not a perfect set. Uh, based on that in terms of the international versions uh the anchor bay dvd set of one through four released as mad mission they are still available in that box set um the fun thing about these these are that uh, some of them are shortened and some of them are features exclusive footage for international re- international release as we'll uh, talk of and uh, you can still get this this box set for like uh, 20 bucks uh, us uh, new and uh, new or used uh, and i think it's a steal and it's worth to have for fans of the series because the some of the movies differ quite drastically in some areas including this one um so i'll, I'll throw it over to you paul uh, any any notes on uh, what you spotted that was uh, distinctly different from the Hong Kong edits? Well, so right at the start, when Sam's character is in Paris and he meets up with his female assassin, uh, in the Hong Kong version, she shoots like a rocket launcher dart at him. It's re- it's a really weird kind of thing. And she's like uh, ten meters away from him, so why even yeah. use uh, an aim? <laughs> right, look look for a scope. And then he he runs off and he quickly encounters uh, the odd job character who flings his hat at him and uh, then he ends up you know in the water and getting picked up by the the undersea submarine shark thing. In the international version, there's a fight scene between him and this this female assassin character that is edited in. Although it's again, it's a very weird kind of edit. It's not seamless. It just is kind of placed there and the two of them fight and they're, they're, they're the, the, some French police come by and say something very French or at least I guess in the mind of a Hong Konger something very French like oh you should not be fighting you should be loving or something like this and, and then they pretend that they're you know making out or something because that's okay you're making love yeah. in public <laughs> that's the French way so yeah it's, it's a very short I want to say 30 seconds at most and it's not very good either. Uh, it's 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 not a fight scene uh, like you think a fight scene could be, but they, it's sort of they, they struggle and they they hug and uh, that's it. You can see it in the Hong Kong trailer. This this footage was edited into the Hong Kong trailer, but never made it to that version. And it's interesting too because it does include a, a Bond trope that we see elsewhere earlier on, where Odd Job or the Odd Job character in this film doesn't just use his 
deadly hat, but he has a claw like the, you know, Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget or... Or even Dr. No, even though Dr. No had a, a, like a black, it looked like a glove, but it was, as a matter of fact, metal hand. Yeah, but which is weird because this claw, it, it acts like a robot claw, but it's actually just a glove because later the odd job character doesn't have it. And <laughs> in the fight scene, this girl also has a similar kind of glove, that, the spiky thing that she fights with. So yeah, it's just a it's a it's a weird scene that I guess they shot and decided no, nah, we don't really need it. Then uh, most of the Baldy Junior scenes are actually gone too, um, which was not unexpected for the international version to remove some of the comedy. Um, it happened for the other movies too that they removed some comedy. So uh, that whole getting the tie stuck in her zipper that that's completely gone. And uh, you first see Carl Macca when he comes to the restaurant and um, the hot montage where Sam Hoy has a, a romantic. Uh, Night out with hearts all over the place, almost nauseatingly so. There's hearts everywhere, man. They shortened that too, but the delight of that sequence is that you hear Sam Hoy sing. The, it's the same song as in as in the Cantonese language version, but it's now sung in English as well. Um, very James Bond style song. It could have, you know, they try. I think to mimic a certain feel that a James Bond opening theme would. It w- how it would sound like, you know, um, they, but it's not a sort of parody of it. It's just some nods uh, to it, I suppose. So, but they, they they shorten this because in the Hong Kong edit, they they go skydiving together and pass buildings filled with hearts and uh, and even the the thing they hold on to while skydiving that's shaped like a heart. So Choi Hak is really trying to make us nauseous of, okay, you want to see a rom- romantic montage? <laughs> I'm going to place hearts all over the effing place. What do you think about that? Uh, so, uh, you, you even uh, noted that uh, side gag of the vinyl, a, a vinyl player and the vinyl itself that they're listening to being heart-shaped. That could be done today. I've seen vinyls that are shaped like saw blades, you know, um, obviously uh, the actual area where you play the music from, that's not, it's not going to skip just because it's uh, saw blade shaped, but I'm sure there's vinyl shaped, uh, uh, hot shaped vinyls out there for collecting purposes today. So yeah, one other scene that I, that I n- noted, but I'm not sure because I watched the international version after I had watched the, um, uh, the Hong Kong version. The scene where they're flying on the little air ski thing and he's pulling Karamaka behind him. In the international version, it seems like the James Bond, the fake James Bond character, he's driving a Rolls or a Bentley that has anti-aircraft guns on it that actually shoots at them. And I think I don't think that was in the Hong Kong version. No, they just say that um, I'm out of gas. You have, you have to jump now and then it flies into a mountain. I think you're right. Um, uh, I didn't recognize that. It's, it's on the international poster. So they, they certainly like that, um, that uh, image. Uh, a couple other notes. The standoff scene. Uh, there's a scene where posing as the Sheik Abbas and he meets with the fake James Bond where they pull guns on each other and the barrels end up stuck together and they're each like telling each other, okay, on the count of three, I'm going to do this. And they both are saying the same thing and they all end up doing the same thing. Uh, That whole sequence is cut out. Likewise, at the end, there's a scene where they fall down and they're caught in sort of a fireman net um, by the police. And Ricky Hoy pops up and he has a one-liner, you know, he's like saying something. See, I, I needed to be here because I saved the day or something. And his scene is is sum- summarily cut out uh, as well. I guess they figured, you know, international audience is not going to get Ricky Hoy's presence there. They're not going to 
maybe know who he is. And then we have the addition of a fight scene with Richard Keel in the control room of an extensive scene of a torpedo and a missile scene between the submarine and the command, I guess, Peter Graves' command boat. Yeah, there's some alternate stuff here that makes owning this version, if you're a fan of the series, quite uh, quite wonderful, uh, because you, you can sort of see how they tailored it for the different markets. Uh, and, and also, by the way, uh, all the Western players are dubbed into Cantonese for the Hong Kong version, but uh, here they're, they're all English, of course, but uh, you have Peter Graves uh, not dubbed afterwards, but uh, he, his scenes are actually sing sound. So he's acting in English, obviously. In Sam Hoy's case, he's acting in English versus Peter Graves, but Sam Hoy is dubbed into English by someone else. But uh, I thought it looked like he kept up with, you know, the dialogue that he had in English. So I, I always gathered that Sam had a fairly good grasp of uh, grasp of English. So yeah, I guess what what they decided to do was, since most of Sam's scenes were in Cantonese, they would just let whoever the English dubber was do everything rather than have that 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 change in in voices you know it's a it's a shame we couldn't get the english on the hong kong cut yeah sometimes they did mix back and forth and just assumed everybody would understand each other but uh, here it just comes up as a very poorly dubbed movie therefore because uh, you you don't feel very connected to peter graves character with him speaking english and all of that so and and not that the role is great it's just a little coup to get someone from the west but um uh, certainly, same for Richard Keel uh, for the f- for the f- few lines of dialogue that he has. Uh, it's, it's all in Cantonese, so most of it is ha 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 ha. And especially with Peter Graves, the the extended scenes we get here with him, where he actually arrives in Hong Kong, he's wearing sort of like a Chinese uh, a male Chinese outfit like Wang Pei Hong would wear, and he's arriving on a junk boat and he gets on a rickshaw and there's a Mission Impossible exploding tape sequence and then he goes into an office and he answers a phone. That whole thing just felt like Godfrey Ho for some reason. It's just like, you know, answering a phone, nobody else is there kind of thing. Just cut him into the film and, and he's there. He does, you know, to be fair, he does actually have some scenes later on with the Hong Kong actors, but that long scene of just him doing stuff, it just felt so tacked on. And some stock exteriors of London or something like that uh, when he calls uh, calls Bond Street. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, he's very disconnected from it all. And it, it all is a nod to his uh, TV series, of course, that Hong Kong audiences probably wouldn't have understood. I mean, they do get Sai Gua Pao to act with him as the rickshaw uh, you know, driver. But um, that's about it. It's, uh, it's, ex- it. it's exclusive to this international version of the film. Uh, fantasy. Uh, even if not uh, exceptional, but uh, I, I like some. I, I like that we got more fights, especially towards the end uh, with uh, Sam and Richard Kill. Uh, that was uh, uh, and and all the alternate events. I quite enjoyed that because um, it was kind of funny that Carl Macia managed to do one more stupid thing. I <laughs> shoot off a lean toward lean on a button, and then a rocket goes off. Whoops! Did it again. So. Go get it. Uh, the international uh, international editions are out there, so if you're interested, do go get it. Uh, okay, let's wrap this up. Uh, the uh, Fong Sai Okay Cisco Places Free episode, and uh, this has been Podcast on Fire. Uh, we're located on podcastonfire.com. This show, uh, along with a few other ones, are available, so you can make your choice over there based on your preference in cinema. I think we got something for you. Uh, at least I hope so. Email us if you have any questions or feedback. Podcastonfire at googlemail.com Join us around relevant social social media. We have buttons leading to Facebook, 
Twitter, to our iTunes, and to our Stitcher radio feed where you can uh, stream our shows. And uh, I write about a variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies over at SoGoodReviews.com. There's some small basic video reviews posted every now and again on SleazyKVideo.com. Not all sleazy. And my tweets are available at SoGoodReviews. And Paul, you get the final plug for your podcast endeavor. Yes, you can find everything we do over at Kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com, where we uh, do our podcast East Screen, West Screen, and talk about films of everything we can get our hands on in terms of Hollywood stuff and Hong Kong stuff. Cool. Well, uh, that's us for this uh, episode. Uh, the, the plan is to do Aces Go Places 4 on, on the director series because we've just started a series on Ringo Lam. So, um, but uh, we, we'll, we'll try once that is out. You and I will try and uh, regroup for uh, the finale, Aces Go Places 5, and you can certainly share your, your notes on Aces Go Places 4 uh, so we complete the picture a little bit uh, once we get there. But uh, uh, for now, this has been Kenny B, and uh, with me was Paul Fox from East Screen, the East Screen West Screen podcast. So, say goodbye, buddy. Bye bye. <laughs>